Welcome to episode 61 of Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Tonight I am joined by the second most famous person from Waltham, Massachusetts, outranked only by Kyle Schwarber from the Boston Red Sox. Darren Weeks. I'm Mary, the sometimes grumpy Canadian co-host he has, whose favorite general is Oliver Otis Howard. Oh, wow. I don't know how you get Howard involved <laughs> in this one. A little Kyle Schwarber talk. Outstanding. Hey, what do you think of that? Oh, I that ranked you two above Nathaniel Banks. And well, that's just praise from Caesar right there, but I'll take it. I'll take it. And I don't think myself or Kyle Schwarber will have a school named after them, like the Nathaniel Banks School in Waltham, but we'll, well take it. Proud like, Waltham guy. You like know. I tweeted earlier today, there's a Banks Square. There needs to be a Schwarber Ave. And this is coming from an Indians fan. I know. It's, I it's, it's crazy. I was impressed it with what I crazy. saw last night. It was a great, it was a good game. It was a great game. Long way to go. But in any case, how are, how are you? What's going on? I'm good. How are you? No, it's good. It's good. We had a great weekend our friend bill from the, the 717 gettysburg came to visit me we, we hung out did some shenanigans in the city and missed our facebook live because of it but i, I have i had a note from the doctor so i'm okay i think that's going to make this saturday's uh well today when this episode drops uh saturday at 10 o'clock is our facebook live it'll probably make it just that much better we'll have two battles to talk about perryville and the battle we're discussing today we are back in the eastern theater and we are going to be discussing cedar creek and back in virginia Cedar Creek. But before we get started, as always, there is business to do and libations to announce. So, well, since uh, you were the second you... greatest person from Waltham, why don't you start us off? All right, fine, fine. For me, with a good time, I am drinking <laughs> from the great Four Score Beer Company. It's called Can Condition Pub Ale. It's got Abraham Lincoln on it, Mary. He's the guy with the hat from Illinois who was a president that we talked about. Right. I'm drinking from my North Civil War Champions mug because this is a pretty big victory for the Union, this battle of Cedar Creek we're going to talk about. Yep. So you know, what, and what about yourself? So I am drinking a beer from Market Brewing Company, which is based out of Newmarket, Ontario, and it is called Given the Circumstances West Coast IPA. And I chose that beer because when Sheridan finally arrives at Cedar Creek, He's asking some of his generals why they were back in that position they were. And one of them said, given the circumstances, basically, I'm just paraphrasing. But I thought that beer was, I saw that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like the what his general said to him when he got back to Cedar Creek. I am drinking it out of my General George Gordon Mead mug because that's usually my mood, my spirit animal for my mood on Tuesday Yeah, nights. oh, grumpy. The Battle of Cedar Creek's a good one, though. We're, we're going to talk about it in more detail, I think. But I think it's important as we get started with this to, you know, to set up how the players got there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we've kind of gone, we've danced around the valley and different things, talking about Kernstown, talking about Monocacy a little bit. And there's a bunch of things about this. You know, like we did Perryville a couple of weeks ago or last week. It was kind of the end-all, be-all of the state of Kentucky or the Commonwealth of Kentucky, mm -hmm. right? And Battle of Cedar Creek is the end-all, be-all for the valley, right? So it's it kind is. of that end state. So, you know, just real quick, just turn back time as, um, as you like to sing. If I could turn right? back time. <laughs> Well, hey, okay. you did send me that email the other night about that they need singers for the national anthem for Boston College, right? Yeah, you should absolutely do that in I'm a thinking game about out it. of town. I'm thinking about it. <gasps> Just my poor, my poor ears. Anyway. You wouldn't be there to so support we, me. I, I'd be there in spirit. I'd be somewhere <laughs> in a, you know, a soundproof place somewhere. I'd be, me, me, me and old Elon Musk be flying the moon or something that day. I'd be busy, <laughs> you know. But, but um, so real quick, Shenandoah Valley campaign. I mean, this, this battle, like I said, was the big final push. It was the really third independent campaign, in this case, begun by U.S. Grant while he was doing his drive to Richmond in that Overland campaign, right? And all three of the, the campaigns that kind of affected the valley 
they kind of all sort of kind of go together a little mm-hmm. bit. You've got the Lynchburg campaign early with Battle of Newmarket and Piedmont and Lynchburg and you know, Field of Lost Shoes, the whole deal. And then you had that Jubal early campaign we talked about when we did Monocacy, when he wants to take out the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad yeah. and threaten Washington. You have Monocacy, second Kernstown, you know, with, with jewelers. Do you have that one? Yeah. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. This is Phil Sheridan's Valley campaign that runs from August to October of 1864. Now, at this time, Grant and Lincoln, they were worried about Jubal Early, who'd been let loose in the valley just to just to do Beetlejuice crap. That's what he was told to basically do, right? And he's got John Brown Gordon with him, too, who's an extremely yeah. aggressive general, as was we saw at Monocacy and all that. Mm-hmm. So he's got him with him. And that's playing this into this is like, too. This is like letting your two drunkest friends into the city is. unsupervised is what this is, right? So he's also going to be threatening Washington, D.C., and he, but really what he wants to do is take the focus away from Grant's assault on Petersburg and Richmond. He wants to kind of draw, draw yeah. people around. So end of July 1864, I think it was the 30th, you have early – his rebels under John McCausland, that fun lover we talked about mm-hmm. in the episode of Monocacy. Yep. They're going to burn Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. The smell is still there, apparently, because it still stinks. <laughs> you know, they burn, you know, 500 buildings. They cause like three quarters of a million dollars in damage. And that's all because the town, they don't want to pay the ransoms, right? And they're yeah. going to, so this is the stuff they're doing. So Early's rampage on Chambersburg was kind of retaliation for all the, sh- the stuff that General David Hunter did yeah. on his burning rampage, including burning VMI, the Virginia Military mm-hmm. Institute. You know, as I'd like to say, VMI, if you're nasty, right? <laughs> and what happens in this valley, it gets really personal and ugly with these guys, right? Well, it's also so near the Ch- end of the war, too, that it's, you know, these, these are guys that are fighting to the last of it right like they some of them have been in the right. war since the beginning and the other thing to remember too is like the 1864 election but after chambers burned grant says i'm i'm done with hunter I, i'm done mm-hmm. see ya gone right he august 1st 1864 grant replaces hunter with general philip sheridan right former cavalry commander in the army of the potomac he has one job go beat the hell out of early and yeah. get rid of him that's your job, okay? Hunter actually wasn't really fired. They kind of, he said, well, you can stay in charge on paper if you want. And Hunter's like, go screw, I'm out of here. Sheridan's now in command of this army of the Shenandoah, right? Grant and Lincoln, they know that, that they've got this Tasmanian devil ready to be unleashed. But they have to take it slow to the thing you just mentioned a second ago was the 1864 election. What he, they don't want him to do is get really crazy aggressive a la Hood in Atlanta mm-hmm. and get do something stupid around Washington right for the election that's going to screw them up. They still weren't feeling completely confident, and I think the monocacy battle scared the hell out of them a little bit, and they could not afford something dumb to happen where Washington gets attacked and they get sieged and something happens. So they had to tell him to kind of take it slow. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of what it is. And Phil Sheridan, little Phil or fighting Phil, you know, he's five foot five, born <laughs> in Albany in 1831, the son of Irish immigrants, graduates from West Point, 1853, was 34th out of 52 in that class with classmates of the aforementioned John Bell Hood Mary, as well as yep. James Burbsey McPherson and John Schofield we talked about. But the thing about him, he was a capital S soldier. That's mm-hmm. what he was. He was one of those dudes who was born to be a soldier, right? Valued loyalty, duty, loved everything about a soldier's life is what he was. And you can see why Lincoln and Grant Roy liked him. You can see why a lot of people didn't. Oh, yeah, because he's very, very arrogant. Lincoln, I don't think, liked him very much at first, but then started to warm up to him. But the other thing that we have going into Cedar Creek, though, to mention is that on September the 2nd, Atlanta has been captured by Sherman. This is a huge, huge thing for the North. But 
you have this valley campaign happening and with this culminating with this battle of Cedar Creek, but you have union victories that have happened leading up to it as well. But you also have Sheridan wrecking the Shenandoah Valley too, which is orders from Grant. That's right. Yeah. You know, Lincoln, you mentioned he didn't really like him too much. He's got a great quote about him that he says about Sheridan. He says, he says, Sheridan was a brown, chunky little chap Mm -hmm. with not enough neck to hang him in such long arms that if his ankles itched, he could scratch them without stooping. Just imagine how that's like Dobby from Harry Potter's <laughs> we just described right there, right to a T, yeah. right? You know, after West Point, he joins the 1st U.S. Infantry, then eventually the 4th U.S. Out in California, he ends up where the girls are warm. Eventually, he's going to negotiate deals with Indian tribes in the Northwest. So mm-hmm. he doesn't do the whole Mexico thing like a lot of these guys do. No. He has that story where he negotiated a deal with, a, with an Indian tribe called the Dekelmans, where he was secretly hooking up with the chief's daughter yep. while he was negotiating. So he that's, apparently had okay. a kid with that girl too. I'm gonna guess the kid was short. Just Probably. gonna guess, right? Yeah, he apparently you know, had a kid. After Sumter, he you know, he goes to Missouri and he becomes a staff officer under Henry Halleck yep. and eventually a quartermaster. Can you imagine Sheridan as a quartermaster? Probably, just just think about that for a second. He'd probably be pretty good at it. He's like that little dude in glory. Yeah. The shoes. Oh, that's yeah. How I that, imagine that's exactly that. who he is. You know what else happened I, to him when he was in that area? What? That's where he got his famous horse. The story of Rienzi is that Rienzi was born near Port Huron, Michigan, which is about an hour and a half from me. It's a town that I go to quite a bit. And the citizens of Port Huron bought him for one of the one of the guys that was going off to war. Well, this horse was very fiery, very grumpy, very headstrong, a lot like Sheridan was. And the soldier they bought him for didn't really like him too much. And it was a very reluctant relationship. So one day the soldier was one of Sheridan's men and Sheridan went over to the horse and the horse and Sheridan kind of took to each other. And the guy was like, you know what? He's all yours. So Sheridan named him Rienzi after this town that they were stationed near. Just like most Civil War horse stories, the story of Sheridan and Rienzi is that the the horse becomes an extension of the general's personality and Rienzi will be with Sheridan throughout the entire Civil War. And he's going to factor into this battle in a very important way in the end. And this is kind of what makes his horse almost as famous as what he is. I met Rienzi. I read the Smithsonian one day, Mary. Yep. Saw him over there. Said hello He's a gigantic him. horse. Sheridan would have needed a stool to get up on onto didn't, him. Didn't say didn't say much, you know, I was mm. talking about. But, <laughs> but you know, but Sheridan, you know, he saw action through a lot of these battles that we've talked yeah. about. P. Ridge under Samuel Curtis. And he was one of the ones who discovered that the corrupt soldiers selling the horses. And to, for private money, he was one of those dudes mm-hmm. who smelled it out and saw the whole thing. He's going to go fight a place like Chickamauga, Chattanooga, and of course, Stones River, which he had a really good day. We talked about that. The thing about it, he gets, you know, he goes from captain to, to major general in just six months, does, right? Yep. But the thing about him, though, okay, is he's kind of a dick, right? He is. He was gruff. He was uh, profane, just demanding, unforgiving, all the attributes of a, <laughs> of a Dairy Queen employee. He, he just <gasps> has it all. In, in, in the valley, you know, commanding this army, the Shenandoah, you know, like I said, his primary goal is to take out early. So he's the right guy for the right job, right? His army he gets is kind of a hybrid kind of. It's kind of a throw into it. He's got some troops that are already there. He's got some that are going to be coming via train. He's got about 32,000 mm-hmm. guys when it's all said and done versus that earliest guys of about 14,000 in that Confederate army of the valley. So his biggest troops is the 6th Corps, which we've talked a lot about yep. when we talk about that in the valley. Horatio Wright, same guy who Sheridan complained about after he after he made Charles Champion Gilbert, who we talked last yep. week, a major general to Perryville. He didn't like that too much, but whatever. Okay, but that's that's 
I'll share it for you. The 19th Corps under William Emery, mm-hmm. who was called Old Bricktop by his troops. <laughs> that's what they called him. Oh, so well, that's all about. He's newly arrived from Louisiana, who recently participated with the great Nathaniel Banks in his yep. Red River campaign. Speaking of him, another guy from Waltham we talk about, right? The first thing he needs to do, too, Sheridan's an old, he's an old cavalry guy. He has to organize his new, this new unofficial official cavalry. Mm-hmm. This is when he kind of steps in a little bit. He puts in a guy named Alfred Torbett in charge. And it was controversial because it was another guy named William Averill, who yep. we've talked about, outranked him. Averill had that really shitty day at Kernstown, remember? So, yeah. And so I think because he didn't want to put his troops in and that whole thing. So naturally, Averill is pissed off. But Torbert gets the job. The thing about Sheridan is he had one of those gifts for terrain. He's an old engineer type. Yep. Not only was he good at reading terrain, but he also had experience in the area with David Hunter and Franz Siegel. He had a curse, so he had a great personal knowledge as well at the valley. Yeah, he did. Um, and then on the other side of things, you have Jubal Early's Army of the Valley, which we have General Stephen Ramser, General Joseph Kershaw, General John Pegram, and General John Brown Gordon, who we have seen before in other episodes. He actually grew up near Chickamauga Creek in northern Georgia. He's a lawyer. He joined a Mountaineer regiment when the war broke out. He's got little to no military training, but he's extremely aggressive. And he's going to play a huge role in this battle right down to the planning of it. He's uh-huh. been at First Manassas seven days. And Tietum, he was the guy that almost drowned in his own blood, I believe, from uh-huh. his wound. Gettysburg, Wilderness, and Spotsylvania. And he's also at Monocacy as well. He was the guy that had dinner with Lou Wallace a few years after the battle. And he told Lou Wallace, you made us lose <coughs> Washington. So with Early, he's been made a division commander. And he's assumed the leadership of Early's Second Corps when Early was promoted to commander of the Army of the, the Valley. You also have General Gabriel Wharton. And Calvary is led by a guy named Lunsford Lomax, as well as General Thomas Rosser. They have 21,102 troops with them. Hey, we'll talk a lot about specifically Rossi here in yep. a little while. You know, Sheridan, he's going to be working with a guy named Lieutenant John Meigs, who by happenstance is the son of Montgomery Meigs, mm-hmm. speaking of quartermasters, right? And they're going to trace the roads. They're going to study the terrain, the farms, the whole deal. So first thing Sheridan's going to do is he's going to march to a place called Berryville, Virginia, which is a few miles east of Winchester, Virginia, and where he first learns that Jubal Early was encamped at a place called Bunker Hill. Not Bunker Hill, Mass. wasn't that far, but it's Bunker Hill, Virginia, right? And it's just a few miles to the northwest. They're kind of in the same area. What happens is when he marches, it actually forces Early to move south to Winchester and then eventually to Fisher's Hill because he's just intimidated by the troop numbers. So all of a sudden, Sheridan has basically cleared out the the lower valley without mm-hmm. even firing a shot. So he's like, all right, well, this is this is going okay. Sheridan first moves to, uh, to Cedar Creek. And which is near Strasburg, about 20 miles south of Winchester. So they're going to kind of move around. This is where, you know, Sheridan's like, you know, this is almost too easy, right? So he starts to get a little nervous, starts to get a little scared, Mary, is what yeah. happens, okay? He starts to get nervous because his scouts are reporting to him that there are Rebs in nearby Strasburg, but he didn't know what their strength was. He's like, look, they're definitely Rebs. We don't know who the hell they are. Also, Emery's 19th Corps haven't arrived yet. They're still traveling on the train from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. They, they made it, right? Traffic brutal you know virginia traffic is the fucking worst throw in the fact that there are these non-stop rumors that james longstreet's corps is coming from richmond to bail out early and this this is an ongoing thing right up until the actual battle at this point sheridan supply trains are going to get whacked by john mosby and this is going to begin this crazy thing with mosby that they're going back and forth so most of the wagons got burned 
They lost 200 troops, prisoners, as well as 600 horses lost to Mosby. Now, Sheridan had a legit hate on for John Mosby. I don't blame hate him. Hate him, right? And the reason why, he was under the impression that he was just a terrorist guerrilla, that he did not was not part of their actual formal Confederate army. He just had a band of thugs that was just just busting shit up. And so now he loses a bunch of supplies and a bunch of troops. He's pretty pissed off. So, mm-hmm. you know, jump ahead real quick here to August 4th. We're still a little bit before the battle. So we just got to set this up. Sheridan's going to get a report from U.S. Grant stating that two rebel divisions are marching towards him to support early. He's still going to have a three-to-one manpower advantage, though, based on the intel they have. Despite this, though, Sheridan gets a little, you know, chickens out a little bit yeah. there. He gets yellow, okay? And he decides the best course of action is to fall back to Winchester. This whole movement is being watched by Early personally, who's sitting on top of Fisher's Hill, twisting his mustache. His Dr. <laughs> I can Evil just picture laugh, him doing right? that, too. You know, in early, early old right, he writes, Sheridan, like his predecessors, possessed an excessive caution, which amounted to timidity. So right off the bat, he's like, cool, and other chicken shit union general to yep. deal with. Perfect, right? The northern press crushed Sheridan for this, for backing away from a fight. And some of his troops did, too. They were starting to wonder, yep. well, this guy's all talk, no action here. So, Well, that's like the Sheridan of Perryville, right? Like, Sheridan yeah, of Perryville I mean, is not overly aggressive at all. No, and he, he isn't, but I, I think he's cautious. I think, yep. he, you know, he's, he's under that guideline where he doesn't want to do anything stupid for the election. He doesn't want to piss off Lincoln. He knows that he was handpicked for this job by U.S. Grant personally, yep. and he knew U.S. Grant had to listen to shit from Edwin Stanton for putting him in that position because Stanton yep. did not want him in this job, and he went on the limb for him. So I think he felt, well, I can't let him down. So for the next couple of weeks, the Rebs are kind of nipping at the army of the Shenandoah's heels at different points. What they were kind of do is hitting him here, hitting him there, because what he what, what Early wanted to do was he wanted to make Sheridan think he had more guys than he really did, mm-hmm. right? So you're talking about a pretty good-sized disadvantage manpower-wise. Yep. The next day, Sheridan is like, well, I'm getting eviscerated in the north. I need to do something again. I have to. So he's going to move back to Berryville. This time he's going to dig in. And while he's digging in, there's early again, sitting in Opaquan yep. Creek. Say that three times quick. Just south of Winchester. And he's watching. So everything he's doing is watched. What he wants to do is he wants to find out what the hell's going on with these rebels. How many people do they have? Are there really troops coming from Richmond? Why the hell would they? I don't know. He has a spy named Thomas Laws who somehow has some kind of connection with a woman in the town of Winchester and Rebecca Wright. Yeah, okay? she's a Quaker now, unionist, apparently. She's going to find out the scoop of Early's plans. We don't want to know how, but she kind of figures out what they are. But more importantly, what she finds out and what she tells Laws, who tells Sheridan, there's no one coming. Mm-hmm. This is it. Not only that, he also learned that not only was no troops coming, but he had a report that Kershaw's division was going to be sent back to Richmond. This moment of Early's vulnerability leads to the Third Battle of Winchester. That That's directly yep, what causes it, right? It does. So, this is on September 19th, 1864. It's going to drop the rubs back to Fisher's Hill. Sheridan is going to hit early again, which is going to create the Battle of Fisher's Hill. The rebs are going to fall all the way back to Waynesboro. The valley is now wide open. It's completely clear. So now Sheridan felt now is his time to get his revenge. This is when Sheridan becomes enemy number one in the valley. There's no rebs to stop him. He's pissed off. He's going to begin a vicious scorched earth policy that is still today called the burning. It's something that does not get enough attention and is somehow overshadowed by Sherman, what he did in Georgia. But as you study this, by October 6th, 1864, his burning has destroyed 2,000 barns, 70 grain mills, 
and 3,000 sheep are gone. Sheridan is going to write about this. When this is completed, the valley will have but little left for man or beast. Yeah, and that's so exactly all- what Grant wanted him to do. And he's doing this before Sherman has even started his march to the sea. That's the thing to remember with this. Sherman hasn't even started his march to the sea. And that's what we focus on is this march to the sea. This is happening before that. There there are troop stories I talk about where, you know, you mentioned before how how like Sherman in Georgia, the stories, well, did he, didn't he? He he gave his orders, don't do this. There are stories where Sheridan is sitting with his feet up, smoking a cigar in wagons, watching the shit burn, laughing. Yep. And this is documented. So you can you can see what that, you can see why people go to the valley sometime and mention Sheridan. And talk, oh, talk, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think it's you know? A, like, you know, I think you go there and it's just as big of a thing as what the March to Sea is in Georgia or kind of in this civil war history right mm-hmm. like we we always focus on the march to sea we don't focus on this great burning that has happened you know grant's strategy at this point is to employ these scorched earth tactics to end the civil war and lincoln has finally agreed to that so you have grant meade and butler going against lee's army in northern virginia in the western theater you have sherman in georgia he's captured atlanta and he's just sitting there right now it's october he's about to start his march to the sea a month later and then you have banks down he's going to try and capture Mobile Bay. So you have kind of this, these three different things happening and two of them are going to become, one of them already has become Sheridan and the next one, Sherman, is going to become Scorched Earth to help end the Civil War. And the, and that's where we are at right now as we're going into the Battle of Cedar Creek. The thing about it though is, just finish up this burning thing here, yeah. okay? People don't like having their neighborhood burned. They just, they, historically, they just don't. No, they don't. Even today, right? This enrages the valley and still enrages him today, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. He also uses opportunity to get back in Mosby because he, he was still pissed at Mosby, right? Yeah. So he had a policy where if anybody in John Mosby's partisan rangers who were captured were to be hanged without a trial immediately, that was the deal. He saw them as nothing more than cutthroats and robbers. At Fort Royal, Union troops caught and murdered three of Mosby's men. They would take him behind a barn and shot as soon as they were caught. Predictably, this put Mosby in a freaking rage, and he vowed revenge on Sheridan. Mm-hmm. What happens is, a couple weeks later, what happens, he catches up. John Meggs is riding around, and he, he sees three troopers up ahead of him and rides up to see who they are. Guess who they are? They're Mosby's guys. Mosby's guys recognize them. What do they do? They To John Meggs, they kill him. Mm-hmm. So John Meggs, the son of Montgomery Meggs, and close friend of Sheridan, is going to be killed, and that's going to cause all kinds of crap. So October 9th, 1864, Jewel Early, who's getting a lot of pressure from Sheridan's actions, begins to pursue him, and he's going to send his cavalry under the aforementioned Thomas Rosser, you mentioned, yep. to harass Torbett's horsemen. And Sheridan told Torbett, whip the rebel cavalry or get whipped yourself. So, and as you said, Early is getting a lot of pressure right now. And on October the 12th, Lee sends him a letter that says, you better move against him and endeavor to crush him. I do not think Sheridan's infantry or cavalry numerically is as large as what you suppose. So Early's got this kind of pressure going on. And the one thing to remember is that the valley has been burned by this point. So any food that Early's men are going to get, it's become a lot tougher. And as we're going to see by Cedar Creek, these men uh, have gone a few days without a meal and their clothes are all tattered. The army's not in great shape. But you have Lee on October the 12th putting a lot of pressure on Early to like, you need to fuck this guy up and get rid of him. So like Sheridan at this point, he's set up at Cedar Creek and he's told his subordinates that they have to provide for their own security. And this involves you using pickets deployed well forward of their camps as well. And the one that doesn't have that, who's we're going to talk about him in a little bit, is General Cook doesn't exactly take this advice. 
and but we will discuss that in a little while when we get to the by the by the time by the time that October twelfth October 9th, right around there, you know both roster is going to get beaten up pretty hard by the Union Cal by Torbert. It's going to be called the the Wood the Woodstock races they called it. How fast yep. rosters been ran. So now Sheridan is pretty confident now that the Rebs are driven out, and he decides he's going to go back. He's going to bivouac to where you just said near Cedar Creek. So what he's got he's got the nineteenth Corps who have arrived under uh, William Emery who's going to be on the right near a place called Bell Grove Plantation. The 8th Corps of the Army of West Virginia under George Crook is going to be in the heights on the Union left, and the 6th Corps under Horatio Wright was in the process of being sent back to Petersburg temporarily to Grant at this point. So this, this troop movement going back and forth, and early, sitting at New Market, which he was this time, gets wind that Horatio Wright and that 6th Corps who has tormented him for mm-hmm. months might be leaving. So he says, well, this might be my opportunity to get revenge on Sheridan so I'm going to move to Fisher's Hill again, trying to get Sheridan to hit him. And this yeah. is right around October 13th. So the next day, all this intrigue continues to go back and forth. Sheridan gets a telegram from Edwin Stanton, asking him to return to Washington for a quick meeting, right? Mm-hmm. He's figuring early is in no position to attack. So he's going to book that trip on the Acela, and, and, but he's going to do so. But before he, he before he decides to go, he does something very smart, which is he calls back right six yeah. core. So he brings him back now, right? Early wants Sheridan to attack him as soon as possible because he wants he wants to hit him, right? So he he does that fake telegram where he where he yeah, he sends a telegram. Station. Lieutenant General Early, be ready to an attack as soon as my forces arrive. Love James Longstreet. Yeah, I think it was a love that gave away. <laughs> yeah. Just saying, right? So needless to say, it was a fake. It was a fake it, telegram. It was, which but, Early admitted to in the 1890s that he had written it, the message and sent it under the older code that the rebels knew the Yankees had broken. And what he wanted to do was discourage Sheridan from sending troops to Petersburg. He just wanted right. to to discourage all of that. So. I think one of the reasons he's using Longstreet is because Sheridan has already fought against Longstreet before. And Sheridan's belief of Longstreet is that he's a very formidable enemy. He's he's seen him at Chickamauga. Well, he was. Yeah, and he saw, like Sheridan saw firsthand at Chickamauga what Longstreet was capable of. So, of course, if you're going to put one person in Sheridan's head, it's going to be James Longstreet. So, I mean, this Uh is, I I don't know. I got to give kudos to Early for this little ruse that he does here with fucking with Sheridan. Might as well. Like, Jesus. Sharon's his defense. Um, he didn't he didn't fall for it. But you know what's still and, in the back of his mind is he's going to Washington. It's still like well, oh that's the thing. shit that could he's happen. He's got to go. He's he's got to go to wa- right. So he's going to proceed to Washington. But the thing about is he does smell a rat. He thinks mm-hmm. something's up. So he kind of does the whole hey what's up Edwin shit look at seven o'clock already I need to go right. Yeah. So he goes quick. So he's going to go. He's going to cut the meeting short. He's going to rush back from Washington from Stanton. He's going to get back to Winchester on October 18th, right? He's going to stay at the house of a tobacco merchant named Lloyd Logan, which the house is still there, Mary. If you're curious yeah. to see it, it's still right there. You can see it. It's Sheridan's headquarters, 1864. He sends word to Horatio right at Cedar Creek now for an update. He gets reported back that all was clear, and he's going to plan on doing some recon in the morning on the 19th to see what's up. So feeling secure, feel, you know, Sheridan put on his kid size speedy pajamas. And he crawled, <laughs> Same size and he I crawled, wear. Yeah, exactly. Five for five. And crawled into into bed, probably a race car bed, in Logan's house <laughs> in Winchester. Okay. Now he's going to wake up on the 19th yep. of October early. He's going to get a knock on the door by a staff person, one of his officers who's reporting the sound of distant artillery near Cedar Creek. Now, he wakes up and goes, "Oh, okay. You know what? Nah, that that's just Wright's artillery recon. Whatever. I I knew that. I knew. I know this is up. But he doesn't go back to bed. He's like, shit. You know what? I, I better. I'm gonna stay up. I'm probably gonna need to get Rienzi ready by nine o'clock. He's leaving. 
He's on he's on the go. He's he's going winter. He's going down to uh, Cedar Creek. He's with a guy named Lieutenant John Forsyth, Major Sandy Forsyth, no relation. No chance <laughs> of that. Captain James O'Keefe and a couple of engineers. Along the way, they're going to get to uh, Mill Creek. They're going to pick up 300 troopers from the 17th Pennsylvania Service escorts. So he's got a little convoy. He's got he's got his he's got his posse now, right? Yep. But he's noticing is as he's riding, the artillery is getting louder. And so Sheridan's like, "What the hell?" He's like, "Okay, I, I expect that this is recon, but this doesn't sound right." Yeah. He literally stops his horse, probably to get help down, right? <laughs> he climbs off the horse, he puts his ear to the ground to listen for the vibrations, like an Indian would. Yeah, and he's listening. Because he had, he had experience in the West. So he probably mm-hmm. picks up that way. And he's like, don't, this, this is not good. So moments later, he looks up and he sees hundreds of fleeing U.S. troops riding in a panic towards him. He quickly realizes that something strange is afoot at the Circle K at yep. this point. But he doesn't know what. And that's because of the stuff that was going on the night before with Jubal Early. Exactly. And so just to set that up, what happens is October 17th, 18th, General Gordon, their engineer Hotchkiss, Major Robert Hunter, General Clement Evans, they go up one of the mountains near Cedar Creek to take a look at the Union position. And they are at the Confederate Signal Corps position at Signal Knob. Early doesn't go with them because his arthritis had flared up. So there was no way he was getting up a mountain that day. So this area they were at overlooks Strasbourg. Fort Royal, and where the Army of the Shenandoah is camped out. Gordon and Hotchkiss determine that the Union left flank is the only place to attack. This is where Crooksmen are. They determine to attack there because Union cavalry are not going to be in that area. They're guarding the fords along Cedar Creek and the North Fork of the Shenandoah River. When Gordon observes is General is General Crook's left flank. Crook has not followed Sheridan's guidance in putting out pickets far enough in front. And mm-hmm. what Gordon says of this, I could see distinctly the three colors of trimmings on the jackets, respectively of infantry, artillery, and cavalry. So he's right there looking at them, and Hotchkiss sketches a map of this. So on their way back, Hotchkiss and Gordon are like, yeah, let's do this. Let's let's attack these guys here. And they decide that surprise is the best. And we're talking about a very, you know, aggressive commander here in Gordon that he knows he's outnumbered, which is, again, going against the rules of war. You're attacking a foe outnumbered. And he's also going to divide his army to do it. But he feels that they have the advantage because he thinks that knowing that Sheridan's already had a win at Third Winchester, Fisher's Hill and Tom's Brooks. They're not going to be expecting shit from them. They're going to think that their army's not in a condition to do that. Early holds a council of war. And Gordon is like, let's fucking do this. Let's attack. But General John Pegram speaks up and says, no, I think we need to attack the right flank. And Early's like, no, no, no. So we're not going to do that. Early's got a choice at this point. Leave the area to replenish his supplies or attack. He's already got the pressure from Lee, but he's already got Gordon, who's already like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Like Gordon is really, really aggressive. So Early chooses to attack and he feels that he can use the surprise to his advantage. What this reminded me of was Pea Ridge in a way. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean just this whole like, we're going to divide the army and we're going to get these fuckers and we're going to, you know, but I mean, it goes a little bit better, I think, at first than what P. Ridge did. And because of Sheridan's total war on the valley, Early's troops are hungry. They've been robbed of food and all that. And but Early's just he's got to take that risk because he's feeling that pressure. And I'm sure Gordon is like, yeah, let's do this, you know. But one thing Early does is he his plan is pretty good, right? It is. Even yeah. with less people. He's going to form you know, three columns, John Brown Gordon's column with, with divisions that are Ramsey, you mentioned, Peter, yep. you mentioned, Clement Evans. They're going to start to march towards Cloud Cedar Creek at eight o'clock mm-hmm. that night. Gabriel Wharton and Joseph Kershaw's division is going to leave at one o'clock in the morning 
on the 19th with 300 horsemen from Rosser's uh, Cavalry Division, and they're going to target that Bell Grove. And the reason why they want to target Bell Grove is they think that's where Sheridan's headquarters is, and they think that's where Sheridan is, and they want Sheridan yeah. personally. Gordon wants, right? like it's so, Gordon who wants him as a prisoner, right? And he wasn't going to; he was he would have gone up the spout if they caught him, yeah. right? Lunford Lomax, you mentioned him earlier, the cavalry guy. He's going to cover potential Union escape routes. They kind of have all their ducks in a row at this moment. So at five o'clock in the morning. With fog covering the, the battlefield, Gordon's column is going to cross that icy river, the Shenandoah, and he's going to hit that Union left under Crook, like you mentioned, yep. specifically right in the face of future President Rutherford B. Hayes' division. Yeah. He takes the brunt of it right at the beginning, sending them running in their underwear in the rear in a panic, literally. Right. <laughs> a little night, bit of Savannah know, action there going that's on. A, I don't think that's a pretty sight, by the way. You know, <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes in his underwear running. There's a, there's a sight for you. You know. 19 Corn Emery is on the Union Center, right? He hears the attack and sees Crook's men fleeing and decides to change his battle line to face Gordon, right? Yeah. The problem is when he does this, he opens up a gap in his line by turning the way he does, and that's going to open the door for Gabriel Wharton to exploit coming from the West. So they're moving troops and they're creating gaps, right? Emery's going to do his best to settle Crook's men down and get them to stop running and reform, especially the brigade of Stephen Thomas, guys from Connecticut, New York, yep. Vermont, right? They're going to reform and they're going to slow the Rebs down just long enough for the supply trains at Sheridan's headquarters to get the hell out, yeah, right? most of them do. So this, this is first Manassas all over again for a minute. They're, they're trying to get, just get their shit out, right? The Sixth Corps is now fighting under James Ricketts. And they're going to set up a defensive line near Belgrove Plantation. So by 7 o'clock in the morning, the Sixth Corps has got a pretty good lineup set up, right? Mm-hmm. They have divisions under Frank Wheaton. Oh, God. Yep. Uh, George, George Getty. <laughs> Team Wheaton. <laughs> and Jay Warren Keeper. Now, Keeper's going to get hit right in the face, his man, by Gordon. Yeah. He'll do the same thing to Wheaton's division, who admittedly was missing one of his three brigades. He didn't yep. win a little bit of a break. He wasn't fully strength. But they did get him on the run. We'll have some fun with old Frank Weed, but I can give him a break, I guess, right? And he was on Keeper's left. Now, this is where George Getty comes in. So Getty sees them starting to retreat, and he's like, shit, I got to do something. So just quick about Getty. You know, nobody really talks about him too much, but he's born in 1819 in Georgetown, uh, West Point. He graduates 15th out of 42 in 1840. His classmates include Sherman, Thomas, and Ewell, and Bushrod Johnson as well. Uh, Bushrod, we talked about last week. Uh, Thomas, oh no, we've talked about him many times before too. He's involved in the Mexican-American War, and he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, which I didn't know, so I thought that was pretty cool. So that's another grave I need to go visit next time I'm there. He sees the Middletown Cemetery, and so he and his troops head to the cemetery, and he says that they ignore the universal confusion and dismay. Crowds of officers and men, some shod and some barefoot, many of them coatless and hatless, all rushing wildly to the rear. It was a sight that would have demoralized the old guard of the first Napoleon. So Getty gets his men into position in this horseshoe-shaped works in the cemetery, and he orders his 4,000 men to hold their fire until the rebels are running up this slope toward them until they're 30 yards away. They fire at them, and this sends Pegram's men back, and then Getty chases them across Metal Brook, and then early orders two more assaults. Pegram goes in again, and so does Wharton, and both fail to dislodge Getty. So Getty is holding his own right now with this, while the like you know everybody else is retreating back, and he's holding it. And we're going to see that by him doing this, it is going to be to the Union's advantage by the time Sheridan gets there. Well, it does because you know what happens early focuses all his, all of his artillery on Getty in the cemetery. Yep. He thinks it's the whole Sixth Corps. He doesn't realize it's just Getty. 
Getty's division was, they, they held the ground against four rebel divisions here. And it put the focus, it was almost like the hornet's nest, right? It's Shiloh. Yep. It, it put the focus on the hornet's nest and, and took the eyes off the rest of the battlefield. So this was the fire that Sheridan heard as he was riding up. This yep. was lit, what he was hearing. So all this fire, the noise coming in from Winchester in this ride, he's passing all these Union wounded guys. He begins to try to rally them. He yells, come on, boys, God damn them. We'll make coffee out of Cedar Creek tonight, which yep. sounds gross, by the way. But that's what he said, okay? Yeah. The troops actually stopped and turned around. Now, one colonel looked at Sheridan and said, the army is whipped. To which he, uh, Sheridan responded back, no, sir, you are you are whipped, but the army is not. I don't know if that was actually what he said, yeah. but that's, that's what led you what they, they said. And you know said, who right? starts spreading so, word that Sheridan's coming back is McKinley. And McKinley, right. And so the thing was funny was that at this point, this 300-man you know, entourage to these horsemen, they can't get down the road anymore because the roads are clogged with troops and wagons. So yep. what they end up doing... Sheridan's riding party ends up getting off the road from it and riding through a real green field on the way. No where if the grass was real or not, by the way, but who the hell knows, right? I'll defer to you on that one. You must have been astroturf, and, I don't know, by the way. But you mentioned that story. McKinley sees Sheridan's flag and starts yelling everybody that Sheridan's here. So that, so it's it, And they're all cheering. They're getting fired up. Further down the road, Sheridan runs into the rear guard of Wheaton's division, who remain yep. back. And at this point, we're holding that line. Now, eventually, he's going to find... Um, find Getty's rear guard, and he's going to meet Alfred Torbett, that cavalry commander who he handpicked. And he told Sheridan, my God, I'm glad you've come. I would love how people talk like this. Who the hell knows? But, <laughs> but what's, what was funny was the Union troops who saw Sheridan instantly became fired up. Now, I just remember, Sheridan's a dick. He's grumpy. He's angry, right? But the troops are happy to see him. Major Hazard Stevens from yeah, Chantilly so fame, Mary. You'd, you'd mention right? him. <laughs> he says his quote is... The, the instantly a mighty revulsion of feeling took place and confidence returned at the bound. Okay, so everybody was happy. So yep. Sheridan eventually is going to keep moving forward. He's going to find his core commanders, George Crook, William Emery, and Horatio Wright. He asked them, um, hey, what the hell are you guys doing in the rear? It's great to see you, but wh where the hell were you? They were covering the retreat uh, to which Sheridan said, retreat? Hell, we'll be back in our camps tonight. It was probably right around this point when he started to get the actual details of what Gordon did that morning. I have yeah. to imagine the Corps commanders probably told him, okay, here's what happened. We got pants down, crook in his underwear is running. We went, it was a bad sight, right? And everybody's so, like, where's Getty? Exactly, right? <laughs> so by, by 1030 in the morning, Sheridan is on the field. He's right there. Yeah. Just by coincidence, because the Confederates didn't know that Sheridan wasn't there. Right around the time Sheridan gets it, guess what happens? Everything goes quiet. Because early Breaking early stops. Stop. They call it the halt. And yep. this halt is going to become like the most controversial aspect of the battle of civil war from a rebel perspective as they all took turns blaming each other. So, yeah. you know. Do you want to um, know what it's early? like? It's like when a rain oh, delay please. comes in oh, in a baseball really? game. Oh, yep. Okay. It's like a so, rain okay. delay in the 2016 World Series. I'm not bitter about it, though, but that's kind of what. What's it like, like to lose a World Series? That must be weird. Anyway, that's a little talk about that. Fucking rain delay. Anyway, <laughs> so Early's going to blame it. He doesn't blame it on the rain. He blames it on two mystery U.S. cavalry divisions that he thinks are on his right flank, yeah. which they really weren't. He realizes it, but then he admits afterwards the Yankees got whipped, but we got scared. That's yeah. what he said, which sounds a lot to me like, you know, Joe Hooker got lost confidence in Joe Hooker. I mean, that's, that's that, what that reminded me of. That's right? exactly what it sounds like. And it's, so when this happens, like early and Gordon have a disagreement. This is around 10 o'clock in the morning, 1030, mm -hmm. right when Sheridan's getting there. Gordon tells early that he can send Carter's artillery to bombard the sixth corps. And early's like, nah, 
they'll go directly. And Gordon's like, no, they're not, they're not going to go unless they're driven from the field, dude. Like, what the fuck? And Early rebukes that too. And then this is when, when Gordon, this is how he felt about that. My heart went into my boots. If one more heavy blow had been delivered with unhesitating energy, with Jacksonian confidence and vigor, and with the combined power of every heavy gun and every ex- exultant soldier of Early's army, the battle would have ended in one of the most complete and inexpensive victories ever won in the Civil War. That's what he had to say say to it. I have to say I relate to that because that's exactly how I feel about the 2016 World Series, had it not oh, been rain delayed. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. The thing is, it's just by tapping his, while Early froze... Okay, Sheridan was reinforcing his lines, right? Yeah. So he's he anchors the rest of Emory and Wright's division to Getty's line, right? And then what he does, and this was probably his best move, he puts Custer, George Custer's cavalry division, on the Union right. So mm-hmm. at this point, he's got the line set up, and he's going to jump on his horse Rienzi. He's going to ride, holding a spectacular hat way above his head yep. as he rides the line while his soldiers cheered. And what's so funny was, un- like I said before, as unlovable and as tough as Sheridan was, he brought confidence very much like Winfield Scott Hancock at Gettysburg. It's that same type Absolutely. of leadership. Absolutely, yeah. So, so Major Aldous Walker of the 8th Vermont, he's in Thomas's brigade. He says, uh, upon Sheridan riding that line, no more doubt existed. We were perfectly and unconditionally safe and every man knew it. So all of a sudden, this mascadaddle turns into Oh, we got this situation. Mm-hmm. So by one o'clock in the afternoon, the Rebs are still stalling. And as quiet as my house on a Friday night when no one calls, there's just nothing happening, right? So Speaking Sharon of not getting is, over things. Oh, stop. <laughs> uh, whatever. Hey, well, the phone, you know what? The phone doesn't ring. I know it's you. So it's okay. It's 25 times. Oh, Jesus. But Sheridan's going to use this time to question rebel prisoners. He's going to, he's not just going to sit around. Okay. He's going to learn one valuable piece of information that he really wants to know. Okay. He wants to know what happened in the 2016. No, he wants to know, he wants to know, is Longstreet here? And the rebel prisoners say, nah, he ain't here. And he's like, good. So he's like, okay. So he now he's like, now he's rested and he's relaxed. Yeah. He would. He's gonna. He's gonna crash a little bit. His staff said he was on the grass, laying on his side, centerfold style, with his head being rested by his arm and waiting for so the rebel like attack. So he's like George Costanza. He's probably got his hat he on. Is. That's what he's. <laughs> that's what he's doing, right? And you did say hat on again. Enunciate, okay? He's sitting there just relaxing. That's literally exactly how he was resting at that point. So four o'clock, Sheridan is going to get sick of waiting. He's going to say, the hell with this. I want to attack. He's going to order his corps commanders to move. Crook on the left, right in the middle, and Emory on the right. And they're all aiming for that rebel right flank that's held by Gordon's division, who was so spread out at this point, they literally had one man for every 30 feet of ground. Yeah, That's how much gaps there were, right? So by now, Early has wasted six hours, six hours while Sharon has all this time to reform his entire army. So yep. they're going to hit hard. And at this point, Mary, he's riding on his second horse, Breckenridge, by the way. Yep. He's traded horses because but he had to call him bullpen, you know, to go well, get Rienzi's the Rienzi's probably, horse. Rienzi got him all the way from you know? Winchester. Like, oh, he, was yeah, Winchester yeah, to... he was. Yeah, he, he was yeah. a long ride. So he's sitting there waiting for Custer to begin the next phase of the attack. So he's going to have Crooks, Wright, and Emery hit. And then once they're engaged, he's going to send old George Armstrong Custer around the right flank and he's going to cause Beetlejuice problems is what he's going to do, right? So what's funny about this is right around this time, Custer, who hadn't seen Sheridan yet in this battle. Oh, this story, yeah. So he runs up to him 
And apparently Sheridan is not a hugger. Apparently he's not, right? He runs up to him and throws his arms around him. And, you know, and just is so happy he to see him. He kisses him too. Right. And Sheridan looks at him and goes, what in the friggin' hell? He jumps on his horse. He just in disgust and rides away from Custer, <laughs> which, which is, you can picture that happening literally yeah. with Custer. He eventually so, forgave him for it though. In the Confederate side, Ramser in Kershaw's division, they're trying to slow down this onslaught now. And they're able to get behind a couple of stone walls to give them a little bit of cover and, and it, credited, it kind of created kind of like a stalemate. Instead of the Union pushing forward, they all kind of stalled. And they were just yep. going back and forth. This is when Custer comes in. So this is just picture like a, like a, like a freaking movie. Custer's going to ride around the rebel right flank and send the Rebs running all Howard style to the <laughs> rear at this point, right? He's going to, because it's the last thing they expected at this yep. point was here comes a bunch of horsemen. General Gordon described this fleeing by saying, they were like clods of clay under a pelting rain. That's how he described it, apparently. So, And the suburb um, commands crumbled to pieces. It does. It does. Unfortunately, the one guy who didn't run was Stephen Dodson Ramser, who's yeah. going to continue to sit back and he's going to fight is what he's going to do. Yeah. And he ends up getting mortally wounded here. He's 27 years old. He's the youngest general in the Confederate Army. And when he's wounded, he's got a white flower pinned to his jacket to celebrate the birth of his daughter, which he had just found out about that morning. Yeah, he just finds out about it, puts a flower on his shirt, yep. you know, to, for honor her, a white flower, and he's going to be killed, shot in the chest, ironically, and he's never going to never going to see her. So no. Rams, of course, Gettysburg fame, big North Carolina, mm. you know. Yeah, he'll uh, die general. later so, at Belgrove Plantation. By 5.30, the Rebs are out, and this is just about over for this battle for the Rebs. The Union cavalry is going to chase them into the night. After the battle, Early is going to write to Lee, nothing saved us. The state of things was distressing and mortifying beyond measure, okay? Back at Belgrove, the Union troops were literally dancing around a bonfire, probably the Macarena, I imagine. Oh, God. Head, and, okay. And they had more you know? reason to dance after Custer got back and told him, told Sheridan that he'd managed to recapture 48 guns. He does. He he, he grabs Sheridan this time around the waist. Okay, so this no shame at this point. And Phil must have been must have been in a much better mood because he just laughed, right? Custer yelled, By God, Phil, we've cleaned them out. So they must have been like, holy crap, we with this, this, we did this. General Emery of the 19th Corps, who was 20 years older than young Sheridan, he wrote, the young man has made a great name for himself today. So everybody in the Union Army is loving him. Sheridan becomes a national hero for what he did and because it was what he did was considered miraculous at the time. Yep. He rallied a beaten army with his own personality and secured a last-minute victory that was rarely seen in U.S. history in a lot of ways. Grant was thrilled because he's like, oh, thank God, I, ha I handpicked this guy, right? Yeah. So Grant, who, as you know, Mary, does not pass out compliments too often. No, he does not. You know, He says, turning the, what bit affair to be a disaster into glorious victory stamped Sheridan as one of the ablest generals. That quote was probably a kick of the nuts to Edward Stanton, saying, oh, by the way, oh, I was exactly. right. Exactly, yeah. Right? Um, Lincoln, he's going to pull out his old quill. He's going to write a letter to Sheridan. He's going to write, tendering to you all the thanks of a nation for the months of operations in the Shenandoah Valley, and especially the splendid work on October 19th, 1864. Everybody loves Raymond at this point, right? Yeah. Everyone's going to be loving Sheridan. To a point, he's become a national hero, and a poet named Thomas Buchanan Reed mm -hmm. is going to write a poem called Sheridan's Ride that went viral in the North. And it's this ride, it talks about his ride from Winchester to Cedar Creek, basically from this horse's perspective, yeah. right? After the poem, Sheridan's going to rename Ramsey Winchester due to the poem's line, Winchester 20 miles away. And then Grant is going to reward Sheridan by making him a major general 
not just in the volunteer army, but in the in, in the, yeah. the, the regular army. And so it, he's he's moved his career is his on the rocket ship to the moon now. His career for sure. Yeah. And it's just funny to go back to that poem that a lot of people know that horse as Winchester, and that became his second name. And that's what if you go to the Smithsonian, you'll see that the name is Winchester on there. But but Sheridan in his memoirs writes. I always knew him as Rienzi. So even though sometimes yeah. he referred to him as Winchester, he still, he still, the original name would always be Rienzi, and that's how Sheridan knew him. But this mm-hmm. spurred not only, you know, this poem spurring not only Sheridan forth into fame, which the battle did that too, mm-hmm. but his horse has this equal amount of fame too. And there's that famous picture of them riding together and all that. And I, I think in some ways too, like like Sheridan's confidence that you see in this ride to Winchester, which is like something, or ride to Cedar Creek from Winchester, which is like something out of a movie, like all the stuff he's saying, like we're going to be in their camps or we're going to be in hell. Like, you know, I, I don't think he's doing it just to rally his troops. He's doing it to rally himself, to give himself the confidence because he knows if he's, he's seen all his retreating men. You know, and Uh he's like, my God, if I if I lose my shit, if I'm like, we've lost this. I think he brings in this kind of confidence, not just for his men, but for himself, too, that if he's riding along and he's being confident, they're going to follow him. And it is like a complete turnaround, you Uh know, from this brilliant. It was a brilliant camp. It was a brilliant plan that Gordon had. I mean, this is the same guy who his troops would kind of question if he was a coward just a few months before, he really went them back quickly. Yep. If you ever go to Washington, D.C. again, Mary, you'll see a statue in DuPont Circle of him, mm-hmm. of Sheridan and Rienzi, right? He's got five counties named after him in the country. Yep. He's got five cities named after Sheridan. So the alternate side of the coin is Jubal early with this one. So Cedar Creek is, is yep. the beginning of the end for Jubal early. So he's going to double down after Cedar Creek by getting pounded by Custer on March 2nd, 1865 at Petersburg. And Lee's finally had enough and he freaking mm-hmm. fires him. What was great about this, though, Early was so enamored with Robert E. Lee that after he got fired, he took his discharge letter, his termination letter, framed it and put it on the wall. And anybody who came to visit him, he showed him that letter. <laughs> it was one of his prized possessions in his entire life oh was his God. letter being fired by Robert E. Lee. And that's, that's just the way, that's just, again, I, I, you know, but. In, in post-battle, he he blames his subordinates. So he blames Gordon. And yeah, Gordon was known to embellish post-Civil War and kind of put things in a, in a better spin for him but you know the one thing that kind of plays a against early in this is is Rosser does go to early at around the same time Gordon had at around 10 30 and been like can we attack again and early told Rosser the same thing no you fucking can't we've got them mm-hmm. you know so Rosser wanted to attack too and the other excuse that early used to Lee for them not attacking was he was like oh my troops are ransacking the camps well that was the thing too yeah and you, we, we kind of we kind of skirted by this when we talk about that too is these troops, there was nothing. I mean, now a lot of it because that burning. So, so you can sit there and say, well, maybe early, you know, maybe early screwed this up, but maybe Sheridan by taking all the supplies and everything out of the area and burning it. When they went to those camps, when they rushed through, they stopped at every tent and found every bit of food they possibly yep. could. And at that point, you got a hungry guy in the cold. It was icy and crappy. You weren't going to get them going. It's like it's like a hungry dog. They're going to eat, exactly. and that's exactly what yep. happened. And but that's that. The halts, the, the fatal halts I've heard it referred to as, that cannot be underestimated. Where Julia Early had an undermanned army, had a real chance to drive them back, head back towards Winchester again. It was a dance back and forth, back yep. and forth. But because of what happened there by him halting for those six hours, it was just that he was writing his own death sentence. And he just sat, a lot of it was on him. 
He admitted before that they got scared. And why they did, who knows? Because the irascible Jubal early, he, he balls out. I mean, I get it with like, maybe he was reading his men and thinking, oh, they're tired, they're starving. They've been on the go since eight o'clock the night before. But then you have somebody like Gordon, who's very aggressive, saying one more push and we've got them. And who knows if that would have been the case, right? Like, what if he had listened to Gordon and Rosser and let them go in? Who knows? Like the men, the soldiers might have been able to rally back and do it, but we'll never know. You know, I know Gordon doesn't get seen in a very good light in this just because he tends to embellish history and stuff but in, in some like you know say what you will about him he's, he's got a brilliant battle plan here but I think in some ways you know this is like <laughs> kind of like a rain delay it's like shit <laughs> we're slowing down troops that are ready to go kind of thing and it's no, it is a fatal halt this battle does I think it really shows the personalities of these guys guys yep. like George Custer and guys like obviously Phil Sheridan guys like Jubal Early mm-hmm. guys like John Brown Gordon all these guys it really shows them prototypical of what they were joseph kershaw you know all of them and so it really puts the whole thing into place plus you've got a couple of future u.s presidents involved in this one mckinley and and so you know it's just one of those things where you know it really kind of seals and puts a bow on the valley right (laughs) it It finishes that whole it finishes that whole thing off and what it really does too is it really if we've talked before about monocacy in atlanta this one was the final slam dunk for Lincoln in the ele- election of 64. This was it. Because they weren't he was not going to lose after this. You yeah. got the success going on in Richmond. You got the, you got the Overland campaign doing its thing, getting Lee pinned down. Now you force early away from the valley, away from Washington. And now it's just a matter of time. So yeah. So this is a battle that I th- I don't want to say it's understudied. There's a lot of people study this one, but I think it's very underappreciated. When you look at the Valley Campaign and everything that went on in 1864, which tends to get overshadowed by Grant. But this is one that I think tells a really huge story because what it does, it makes Grant's life a lot easier by not having to worry about early at this point. It takes him off the dance floor and and that's pretty much the end of it. Yep. And it makes Lincoln's life a lot easier too, going into the 1864 election. And, you know, we talked before about Ramser being probably the tragic death on the the side of the Confederates, 27 years old. He's just had a, a daughter. These Union soldiers like Sheridan, Merritt, Custer, Captain Henry DuPont are coming to pay their respects to him. But on the Union side, there is another soldier that passes away that I know that you know a lot about, and that's Lowell, right? Charles Russell Lowell is a sad one because he's one that, you know, he's killed in this battle, and he he's somebody who had gigantic post-war political mm-hmm. ramifications. So you, you think about guys like this, and there's a lot of sad stories. I mean, they, the U.S. had uh, twice as many casualties as the Confederates in this one, yeah, about 5,600 to about 20, about 3,000 or so for the Rebs. So on paper... Casualty-wise, you know that the Union took their took their lumps, but strategically, this was one that was certainly Sheridan's best moment. When we talked, when we were doing Stones River, we talked about was that his best moment. But no, Cedar Creek is clearly Sheridan's best moment for a million different reasons. But we won't talk about the rest of Sheridan's career. We'll save those for other podcast episodes. But I think what this battle did is made his britches very big going forward, and I think it it alienated him with a lot of different people. He kind of became a little Napoleon in a lot of different ways. You know, Governor K. Warren will agree with me on this one. And so he he certainly had some success. He was the flavor of the month nationally, and he certainly took advantage of it. And so and he's going to do his thing that's going to end up down down the rest parts of Virginia during the rest of the the Richmond campaign with five forks, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll see. We'll, We'll, you know, we'll hit those again. So, yeah. So I think MVPs, right? I know who you're going to pick. Getty. Yep, Getty yeah, and and Getty. on the Getty and on the Confederate side, I'm I'm gonna go with Gordon just for his plan that he had. I think for the MVP for me and the Union is going to be George Custer. I think it's going to be Custer for what he did. 
because he really, by going around that right flank and really broke Ramser, I, I think that was a big part of it as well. On the Confederate side, it's it's really tough to say. It really, really is. I think I'd probably give it to Stephen Dodson Ramser for holding out as long as he did, costing him his life in a situation where the whole battle was collapsing around him at that point, and he stayed. Yeah, I know a lot of people really, really like him for the stuff he's done. So that's what that's uh that's a scoop with that. I think I think we um have done justice to Cedar Creek. I think we have. on the anniversary of the battle. Tonight, yes, we recorded on the anniversary of the battle, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. What's coming up next for us? We have um, our Facebook Live ten o'clock Saturday morning. So if you're listening to this before ten o'clock on October the twenty third, oh, you're not twice. you're not going to bail again. You're going to do it this time. <gasps> you fucker. <laughs> And then, um, so, and then next week on the 27th, we're pushing it back by a week. We are having our round table, but we are going to have like a Halloween round table. So we're still going to nerd out about the civil war and stuff, but you know, we would encourage all of you to show up in a costume because we have a prize for the best costume. That's so, right. So dress up in your, we're not going to, we'll just say the prize right now. It doesn't right have now. to we'll be in it, civil no. war theme. Just, just come dressed in a costume. We're going to pick best costume and we've got something to give away to you guys and we will be announcing what that is in a few days and if you've never attended before info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com and we will send you an invite to the round table and you can come join us and then on saturday october 30th we will be dropping our second halloween extravaganza i want to say live from the boo barn but that's kind of inappropriate mm-hmm. um and oh, our wow, friend okay. jen price or jay price is going to be joining us again she joined us last year for a halloween episode so we were very happy to welcome her back for our halloween episode this year so that will be on saturday october 30th that that episode will be dropping so a lot of good things coming down the pike so i think we can jump off and head off on the wild blue yonder here and call it a day yep. so any final words from you fincheru well thank you for bringing it as you always do um you did awesome tonight and thank you to all our listeners for your support for these 61 episodes it's been quite a journey thank you all we couldn't be here without you well, we are on to 62 we're on to halloween and some good stuff but i'm looking forward to the round table i have my halloween costume already picked out mary we will we will wait to show that to everybody here a week from, from tomorrow on Wednesday. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. So we'll talk to you soon. We'll catch up with you down the road. Have a great rest of the week. Stay warm up there in the great white north. And I'm going to stay, try to stay warm here in the <laughs> cold little town I'm in. So You're in the that same latitude as me. What are you talking about? You're in the great uh, white north too. It is cool. It is cool. <laughs> All right. So everybody, thanks for listening. Again, we appreciate it. We look forward to talking to you on the live. Definitely sign up for the, um, for the round table. We'll have a lot of fun. I promise. Someone's going to win something really, really cool. And um, hopefully everybody dresses up and has fun with that. So that being said, Mary, off off we go. And we'll see you on the other side. See y'all later. Peace out. Go Socks. Bye. Go Socks.